0: Our reading this morning is from Ephesians 2, 19 through 22, and this is what Holy Scripture says. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. May God bless the reading of his word. Thanks be to God. We are continuing our uh, series in Ephesians. We've been going through the book since September. It's going to take us uh, into the summer of 2019. And we are uh, here towards the end of chapter 2. I love this passage uh, because this passage that we're looking at this morning speaks to the corporate identity that we're trying to cultivate and foster here at King's Church. If you've been with us since September, we've been talking about family. We've been talking about our focus of wanting to Uh, become a growing and thriving family. And that's very difficult to cultivate that kind of mentality when you have such a diverse group of people, especially in a culture today that emphasizes the individual. Now, of course, uh, this weekend was the last weekend of the college football regular season, and I'm a huge college football fan. I love uh, watching college football and get so much enjoyment out of it. And one of the things that's clear uh, if you've watched college football or any sport really, the teams that have be- been able to create that team identity are the championship teams. Alabama's at the top of the mountain you know, for in college football these days for about the past decade. Nick Saban has won, I believe, something like five national championships. It doesn't matter who's there. Alabama is able to to focus on that team emphasis, and they're successful each and every year. It's incredible. Now, not all athletes are known for being team-oriented. In fact, some athletes are known for being very uh, selfish. Now, uh, some athletes on that list, I don't know if this is fair or not, um, but I saw this article. It it was titled, Ten Selfish Athletes Who Put the I in (laughs) T-I-M, Team, right? You've heard that phrase, there's no I in Team. Uh, well, these athletes apparently put the eye in team, guys like Alex Rodriguez, Brett Favre, Terrell Owens. Now, that may not be fair, I don't know, but that's the reputation that they have of, among some people. And it was uh, the famous Vince Lombardi who helped even create uh, the NFL in, in some ways or was won the first Super Bowl He put it this way, the individual commitment to a group effort, that is what makes a team work, a company work, (coughs) a society work, a civilization work. It's this idea of individuals coming together for a common goal, a common purpose, understanding they're a part of something bigger than just their individual agenda. And in our passage this morning, that's really what Paul's trying to, to, to create for the Ephesians, uh, the Christians in Ephesus. He's trying to create that team identity. He's trying to say, listen, there's no I in church. Uh, and, and some of you, that's how you, you evaluate a church. Uh, some of you have a, a kind of a, an agenda and expectations. Uh, you might think, I like or don't like the music. I like or don't like the preaching. I, I connect with the, the types of people in that church. And, and, and sometimes you can get caught up in that I, 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 or me, me, me. And what we want to do is we want to shift from that me focus to a we focus. And that's what Paul is trying to do throughout the letter of Ephesians, is focus from that me to a we emphasis. In other words, what makes a great church? Is a great church a church that meets all of your needs? Or is a great church, a church, a community of individuals who've come together for a common purpose and common vision and common direction and motivation? That's God's design. That's what Paul wants to show us. So let's look through these verses briefly this morning to see what Paul has to teach us. Notice in verse 19 how he starts off. He says, So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Now, of course, Paul is speaking to an audience composed of Jews and Gentiles. Gentiles would have been anybody other than the Jews. Now, if you know your Old Testament, you know the Jews were the people of God, the chosen people in the Old Testament. And if you were a Jew, it was easy for you to fall into this uh, lie That you were unique and special in the sense that God favored you and only favored you. But what was integral for the Jewish people to see, and David mentioned this and talked about it last week, was that God actually chose the Jewish people in the Old Testament for a purpose, and that they were to be a blessing to the nation. You see, God did not choose the Jewish people to stay the chosen people exclusively. No, no, no. They were a vehicle by which the Messiah would come and the floodgates would open and all the nations would come to faith and become the people of God. And what Paul is saying here is that you you Gentiles, you who are not Jews, you now, because Christ has come, are now fellow citizens with the saints, the holy ones, fellow believers, you have equal status, equal standing. Now, if you <clears throat> have come to this country and you have taken the test for citizenship, you might have a better understanding and grasp of the significance of what Paul is saying here. Uh, I don't know, maybe some of you have taken the test for citizenship. One of the questions, I thought this was interesting You know, to think about. Here's one of the questions you might answer on the test to become a citizen of the United States, I'll I'll put it up on the slide, what do we call the first 10 amendments to the Constitution? The Declaration of Independence, the Inalienable Rights, the Bill of Rights, the Articles of Confederation. Now, right now, there are many natural-born citizens are going, I don't know, (laughs) you don't know, and I'm not going to tell you, I'm actually going to let you do that research (laughs) for later, don't get distracted. Don't pull out your phones. Don't Google it, okay? But I want you to think about this concept. Uh, this is an example of the hoops you have to go through to become a citizen of the United States. You've got to take a test, and you've got to get a certain score. The kingdom of God is very different. The gospel story, the gospel message, my friends, is that Jesus has taken the test for you. It's not about the test you have to take the hoops you have to jump through, the ladder you have to climb to become eligible to become worthy of being a citizen in the kingdom of God. Paul's whole message is Jesus has done it for you and by faith in him you now are granted his, te- his answers to the test. Jesus got 100%. And by faith, he gives you his answers. You now have equal status. You see, it takes away any sense of superiority, any sense that you've earned it, any sense that you deserve these, this equal status. And Paul's trying to get that point across, that you can celebrate in the fact that by faith, you are granted this. And you are now a member of what Paul says, the household of God, the family of God. You are a family member of equal status with the person who has been a Jew for their entire life. You have equal status with them. Now, this idea of family, is so that's one of the things that was so radical about Jesus' ministry. If, you're, if you remember in Matthew's gospel, there was a story there, we're told in verse 46 and following, that while Jesus was speaking to the people... His mother and his brother stood outside asking to speak to him. But he replied to the man who told him, Who is my mother, who are my brothers? And stretching out his hand towards his disciples, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. Here Jesus is making this radical statement that as the church... If you are a member of the church, you're part of the church by faith in Jesus. You are now a part of the family of God. You now have new mothers, new brothers, new fathers, new sisters. We have new relationships. So not only has our status changed as citizens in the kingdom of God, your status has changed as family members in the household of God. And there's certain loyalties and commitments that come with that. Each person in our church, we need to view each of you, each of us of equal status, of equal value, of equal worth, no matter your age, your gender, your ethnicity, your social class. I think this is so important for us as we look around the room and we see such a diverse group of ages and ethnicities and social class that we are able to say, you are. Or my brother, you are my sister, whether it's a, a child, the, the, you know, a 17-year-old high school student can look at the 60-year-old uh, person in our church and say, yes, you are part of my family. If you're a 24-year-old second-generation Korean American female, you can look at a second-generation, you know, 60-year-old uh, person of Hispanic descent and you can say, no, you are part of my family. You are now together equal citizens, equal family members of this new community that Jesus creates. Now, the key to creating such a family is if we have an understanding of our identity, but we have values that align. And that's, I think, why Paul reminds us in verse 20 of what the foundation of this new community must be. You notice in verse 20 what does he tell us? That this new household of God is built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. Here Paul when he says built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, here Paul is saying the church <clears throat> must be built on the foundation of God's word. Now if you read any book or any website on the importance of creating team identity. They talk about how it's important for us, for a team to have a unified mission and vision and values. And so what Paul is saying is that the church must find its mission and vision and values on the, in the foundation of God's word. That we're not here to create something innovative and new per se, But we're to ground ourselves in the word of God. Now, one thing that that kind of is distinctive about our tradition as Protestants, Reformed Protestants, uh, from our our Catholic friends, is they might read this, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, and they might point to the succession of bishops from the apostles. They might say, well, listen, we can trace the lineage from, from Peter and each successive church leader there's a connection there and to the church today we can make that connection and that's what the church is grounded on that succession we would disagree with them and say no the foundation here is not so much on that succession of bishops or church leaders but on the word of god it's the word of god it's the testimony of the apostles the testimony of the prophets of the Old Testament. That's what our church foundation is built on. That shapes our mission. That shapes our values. That shapes what we do. And so that's very important, I hope, because I hope for you, when you're thinking about what is a healthy church, what should a healthy church be about, hopefully that's at the top of your list, and you'll say, Listen, it's vital for a church to find its identity and mission and values and vision in the Word of God. That's got to be our starting point. That's got to be the thing that we grab hands together and and stand around and say, this is the foundation by which we even do ministry. We even understand how we know God. Um, We understand our purpose, our, our mission as a church. It comes from the testimony of the apostles the prophets. Now, let me tell you, as a church leader, as a pastor, it's very tempting. It's very tempting to try to build on a different foundation. When you're a leader of a group or an organization, especially a church, it's very tempting for someone like myself and our, our elders to get so concerned about growing the church. And uh, coming up with something innovative and coming up with something that's going to attract people and to build our numbers. And I'm reminded of what Paul warns us of in Second Timothy, where Paul, in talking to Timothy, he he gives Timothy this important reminder. He says, "...for the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching but have itching ears. They will accumulate for themselves teachers." to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. It is very tempting, very tempting to be so concerned about bringing new people into the church to try to create something exciting, try to create something that will engage you and in some ways turn our backs on the word of God. And forget that it's the Word of God that must be the foundation. And that's what we must ground our teaching in. And that's what we must ground our Sunday morning worship in. And that's what we're trying to do. Um, Please be careful of falling for charisma and communication skills. Oftentimes that's what attracts people to the church. They, They hear that one speaker and he's got so much charisma and so much communication skills. And that's why you go to the church... Because you like the preaching. Now, you might say, well, that's exactly what someone without charisma and communication skills would say. (laughs) Guilty. (laughs) I love the story of two men who, uh, back in the the late 19th century, they're in London and they're visiting two great preachers in London at that time. They, they visited the church of the first great communicator and they heard this man preach and they were amazed at his charisma, amazed at his communication skills, and they left that worship service going, wow, <clears throat> that preacher was an incredible communicator. And I was very moved by his passion and his exposition of the text. Then they went the next Sunday to hear Charles Spurgeon preach. And they heard Charles Spurgeon preach his sermon. And Charles Spurgeon was one of the greatest preachers we've ever known. Um, And they left that worship service saying, Wow, what an amazing Savior we have. What an amazing Messiah, Redeemer is Jesus. You see the difference? You see, Charles Spurgeon, and in his communication, was able to point people to Christ, not to himself. And that is an unusual gift. But that's the goal. That's the goal. And in fact, that's why Paul points our attention, I think very importantly, at the end of this passage, at this verse, he says, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. And I think why that's so important is Even a church like ourselves, who might be focused on the Word of God and trying to put the Word of God and remind ourselves the Word of God is the foundation, we can so emphasize the Word of God that we forget Christ. The Bible can become such a value and so important that we can miss Jesus. And I think Paul reminds us here that Jesus himself must be the cornerstone of this household of God, this building that he's starting to talk about that is the people of God. Now, a cornerstone, We may not know what a cornerstone was. Um, In the early 1990s, archaeologists found five large stones that formed the foundation of the temple in Jerusalem. The largest stone... Was about 55 feet long, 11 feet high, 14 feet wide. And estimated to weigh over 500 tons. Now that stone would fill a good portion of this room. Huge. And the cornerstone was so important in building back in in the first century because it was from the cornerstone that the rest of the building was actually laid out. You would take your your direction and your support from that large cornerstone. And so what Paul is saying that Jesus himself must be the aligning compass for our church. Even as we look to scripture, we must always see scripture through Jesus. Jesus must be the compass by which we even understand Scripture and understand the Bible because we're told He is the living Word, the living Word. And so Jesus Himself must be that cornerstone, must be. And and what's interesting is, and I find this fascinating, is one of the things that's so unique about Christianity when you think about it is most religions in this world will point to the teachings of a great religious leader and say, follow this leader's teachings and they will guide you the way you need to go. But you notice with Jesus, is very different. Jesus didn't point to his teachings. Jesus pointed to himself. You See the difference? Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Jesus wants you to look to him, not just his teachings, first look to him, find your life in him. In other words, Jesus wants that relationship. He doesn't want you just to follow his teachings. And I think in large part, that's what Paul's getting at here when he calls Jesus the cornerstone. Because this is the important point. In the narrative of Scripture, when we look in the Old Testament, when they talk about the cornerstone, their prophecies in the Old Testament talk about the cornerstone being rejected. And what Paul and other New Testament writers did is they took that concept, they saw Jesus as the cornerstone was rejected by the religious leaders of his day and and became a stumbling block. Jesus was alienated from the religious community of his day, was crucified by the religious leaders of his day, and through his alienation we were able to be brought into the family of God. This is the wonderful message of the gospel. It's through Jesus' rejection that you and I are accepted. And so Jesus in and of himself is the cornerstone by which we are built, the church, the household, the people of God. It is in him, by faith, that he forms us and shapes us And provides the foundation for the very thing we're trying to create here at King's Church. And that's what Paul wants us to be reminded of. In other words, we can't understand concepts like love. You know, people in our society talk about love all the time. And they say, well, Jesus, he just calls us to love people. And scriptures say love people. But we need to understand how to love people by looking at how Jesus loved people. You see... We need to understand the concept of love by seeing the life of Christ and seeing how he displayed love. See, Jesus displayed love and truth. Jesus said hard things to people sometimes. Jesus loved them enough to say hard things. And so, see, in that sense, our, even our concept of love is shaped by the person of Christ. And that's what Paul wants us to to understand when he calls Jesus that cornerstone, that even our concept of what it means to love must be shaped by Jesus. And so as a church, that must be how we understand how we love each other. We love each other as Jesus has loved us. How we show compassion and forgiveness. We show compassion and forgiveness in the ways that Jesus has shown compassion and forgiveness for us. And that's how Jesus becomes our cornerstone. Now, Paul takes that imagery of a cornerstone and he wraps up this, these few verses here in verse 21 and 22. Notice what he says, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Now, this is a fascinating concept when you sit and think about it. So let's, let's meditate on this for a second. Paul is saying that our church is the temple of God. Now, often you'll hear Christians talk about how they individually are a temple of God, and in a sense that's true. But I would argue Paul is trying to get us to see That while being a part of a church family is not an an essential requirement for being saved, being a part of a church family is the natural expression of being saved. Throughout scripture, from the very beginning in the book of Genesis in the garden, we see this theme of God being present with his people. In the Garden of Eden, God was in the garden with Adam and Eve. And Adam and Eve were not ashamed. They were in relationship with God. And we see a picture of how God created all things to be. And it was good. But then we see sin comes into the picture and there's this alienation and separation. God is no longer present with us on earth in the way he was in the garden. And so as you follow the story of Scripture, you get into... Uh, the desert when God's people built the tabernacle. The tabernacle was a big tent where God, God's everywhere. That's one of our beliefs and understanding. God, God is omnipresent, but in a unique way, God's presence manifested in the tabernacle, in this tent. And of course, from there, we see Solomon building the temple in Jerusalem where God's presence was manifested in a unique way There. But then we make our way into the New Testament, and John's gospel begins with this idea that Jesus himself was a new temple, that Jesus in flesh and blood was God present among his people. Now, notice how the story goes. Here now, we're told by Paul that you and I are now the temple of God. He describes us in this way, that God's presence now is uniquely manifested in us, in us, corporately. Now, I find this to be a very challenging way to think about God's presence, because I think each, and each person here, you in some way want to know God, I would imagine, unless you were dragged here by a friend and you have no interest in God. But even if you're in that place, I'm sure you're curious to know, how can I know God? Now, I know some people who do not profess faith in Jesus. Um, they, They don't believe because they think, you know, if God wanted to show himself, he would make it very clear, right? If God wanted me to believe in him, maybe he would You know, right in flames in the sky, hi, I'm God, how are you, Uh, how was your Thanksgiving? You know, there would be some obvious display of God's presence. And yet, God has chosen not to display his presence in that way. Scriptures, Paul here is telling us God has chosen... And you can choose whether to open your eyes and see this or not, but God has chosen to display his presence corporately in his people. Now, as we we reflect on how that comes about, I want to draw your attention to a a quote by C.S. Lewis where he was talking about the importance of community and friendship and how We're not able truly to know each other unless we know each other in community. That there's something in the relationships you have with one another that bring out different characteristics and qualities in the other person that you're trying to know. And here's a quote in the way Lewis puts it. He says, in each of my friends, there is something that only some other friend can fully bring out. By myself, I'm not large enough to call the whole man into activity. I want other lights than my own to show all his facets. Now that Charles is dead, this is a friend of C.S. Lewis's, I shall never again see Ronald, he's talking about Tolkien there, reaction to a specifically Charles joke. Far from having more of Ronald, having him to myself, now that Charles is away, I have less of Ronald. Very insightful. Very insightful. Now, I want you to take that idea and concept and apply it to God. Some of you might say, well, I don't need church. I I have church on the beach. I take a walk on the beach, and I feel God's presence. I see God in his creation. I'll take a hike in the mountains by myself. I see God. I commune with God. I don't need church. I I can worship God by myself in his creation, and in a sense, That's biblical meaning. Scripture does tell us that we can know qualities of God in nature. We see his artistic handiwork, and we get to understand and know a part of God. But I would argue that's a very limited experience of God. And what Paul is telling us here is that God manifests himself in a unique way in our corporate relationships meaning you'll only know God in a fuller sense if you know Him in community with fellow believers. Now, I, I apply this in my own life. Uh, one example I shared last week during the Connect Hour that one of the ways I've experienced God's love for me most powerfully is in my relationship with my wife. Notice how that works. I've known God more fully in His grace for me through the grace that that my wife has shown me. I could not have experienced God's forgiveness as powerfully if I were isolated and by myself as I have in the ways that my wife has forgiven me in those times when I've, I've, I've sinned against her. In another way, another way to think about it is, when I see someone like Danny express his gift of music, I know an aspect of God more fully in his creativity, in his his gifting of Danny. I see that and experience that in a way I wouldn't if I was just by myself playing music. You see, we can use a multitude of examples of how this comes out. And so what I'm asking you guys to do is, as you grow in community, open your eyes to see God's presence in one another. See how God is manifesting himself, because you are the temple of God. You are God's presence here on earth. You are the hands and feet of Christ in the world. I think that's what Paul wants us to see. And I hope the power of that team identity will continue to shape and create us into the church Jesus wants us to be. Let me pray for us. Lord Jesus, thank you for this powerful passage. There's so much more that could be said as we reflect and think about the power of this corporate identity that we can have in you, Jesus, as our cornerstone. And I pray for our church family that as we reflect on you, who you are, what you've accomplished for us, that we let that identity begin to seep into our hearts, that it would become more than just words, more than just information, but it truly would become a reality in our lives, in our relationships in how we love and care and support for uh, for one another, Jesus. We pray in your name. Amen.